buy a copy after the talk and Scott will have some time to sign some copies for you. The title of the book is Talking to the Enemy, Violent Extremism, Sacred Values and What It Means to be Human. Um, in the book he explores the, one of the, amongst many things that he explores, one of them is the issue of familial and friendship circles in the radicalization that underpins religious violence and uh, he is of course a, uh, a regular uh, expert advisor to uh, governments, in particular the US government. Scott, welcome to LSE. Well, I am uh, I'm an anthropologist, and I'm not a terrorism expert or anything. I, I got into this because I'm interested in trying to understand people who are as different from me as possible. I worked many years uh, with Native American tribes in the rainforest, and I got involved with suicide bombing for two reasons. One, I was a French scientific advisor in Jerusalem back in the 80s when the Hamas was being formed. I was both teaching at the Hebrew University and in Bir Zayf, which was closed at the time, underground. <coughs> and uh, the reaction to 9-11, which had put together the Hamas and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda into one big mishmash, intrigued me. Why in the world would anyone do something so stupid? And uh, also the idea of why would anyone actually blow themselves up, uh, which goes against all sort of standard evolutionary theories. And so I try to fit this whole phenomenon within a much larger evolutionary framework and try to describe in the book the history of violence in our species and try to show that what is happening now is not so very different from what's happened at intermittent intervals in our species history and that it is based on some intriguing notions that I think have been understudied uh, in academia, and that's the notion of sacred values. Much has been studied about economic decision-making, material values, rational choice, cost-benefit logic, very little about morally motivated decision-making based on transcendental or sacred values. And I really think that that's what got us out of the caves, uh, and that is what moves human beings, civilizations forward, and that the survival and sustenance of civilizations depends more on sort of transcendental dreams and hopes than they do on uh, actual material accomplishments which become possible within a transcendental framework. That's what actually motivates uh, material movements. So I want to introduce you to the notion of glory. Glory is something as John uh, Senator John McCain said in his campaign against Barack Obama, people want to serve a cause greater than their self-interest. It's the same sentiment expressed by Mohammed Sidi Khan, and it is the same sentiment expressed, of course, by Barack Obama, in fact, by every political leader of note. But where does this come from? In The Descent of Man, uh, in The Origin of the Species, Charles Darwin first thought that human beings, like all other living creatures, do things exclusively out of self-interest, either in the short term or the long term. But the, the larger and larger agglomerations of human societies among perfect strangers puzzled him. And what puzzled him even more was the notion of bravery. Why would you commit to sacrifice yourself for a group consisting largely of strangers? And so he, he began to modify his view in The Descent of Man, something I'll call moral virtue, that humans are endowed with a love of their groups that includes perfect strangers, the only species on earth that we know of that does sacrifice for perfect strangers, and they do it out of a sense of moral obligation. And he argued that at all times throughout the world, tribes have supplanted other tribes. And as morality is the important element of their success, the standard of morality and the number of well-endowed men will thus everywhere tend to rise and increase. So in those societies where brave people exist in hopeless causes, and he insisted on hopeless causes, not to gain esteem in the event of winning it, those will be the same societies that will triumph and survive in the end. 
Now, my aim here isn't to relativize morality or to argue that the patriot, the rudest savage, and the jihadi are the same, but to suggest that sacrificing life for God and group is not an exception in human history and cultural life, but a general canon by which groups form, vibe for survival, and thrive. Now, much more, as I said, is known about material values than sacred values, but I want to argue here that it is sacred values which motivate jihadis, suicide bombers, but also motivate the no most noble sentiments that we in our own societies uh, adhere to, and in particular human rights. Human rights is a very religious notion. In fact, it's a sacred notion. If you think about human rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, you think about the Declaration of Independence where the authors finished with, we dedicate our sacred honor, our fortune, and our lives to fight against what was then the greatest empire in the world, Britain. And you think of why they do this, why they're willing to do this, uh, regardless of the outcomes, regardless of the costs. And you understand that, again, that is what motivates people to great achievements. Now, human rights emerged for the first time in the Enlightenment, in the mid-18th century. It actually began, ironically, with the case of waterboarding in France, Jean Calas. And Cesare Beccaria, an Italian nobleman, wrote a tract that people like Adam Smith and Thomas Jefferson and Voltaire picked, on, picked up on. And the first human right became the right of an individual to protect his body from suffering of others. And within 50 years, torture, which had been a public spectacle up to that time, was banished in Britain and in France. And the notion of other rights, human rights, including life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the right to choose your own representatives, all emerged founded in that first fundamental right that prohibited torture. I say it's an irony because President George Bush just today was defending <coughs> waterboarding, that same right that, of course, was defended during the Holy Inquisition uh, and is, has been a long, has a long and, and torturous history as, a, as I think, an evil. Um, but if you look at the history of human rights and the history of our species, nothing can be more unnatural than human rights. Although today we believe it's natural and self-evident, and the framers of the Declaration of Independence and the Declaration of the Rights of Man framed it as given by providence and as being eminently natural. Think about the history of our species for the 200,000 years before then. It was defined by cannibalism, slavery, suppression of women. Only in the last few decades have these things begun to spread. And it's due to social engineering of a deep and uncommon sort. So the idea of transcendental values, religious values, even in their secular guises, again, is what I think motivates human beings to both their greatest evil and their greatest good. And I think on the world stage right now, these notions are competing for the souls of young men and women across the world, especially young men, who have been cast in the driftwood of globalization. I think the notion of a class of civilizations is dead wrong. There is a crash of territorial cultures. As globalization has enabled the access of large chunks of humanity to a better standard of living, so too it has fragmented traditional territorial cultures. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with families of suicide bombers and friends of suicide bombers, and I was struck in the end of faith by Sam Harris. The beginning begins with an anecdote about a suicide bomber blows himself up and how happy the parents are. Now, I have never met a parent who even knew that their child was going to be a suicide bomber, or a parent that wasn't willing to cut off the legs of their children or chain them to the heater to prevent them from blowing themselves up. In every example I know, it has happened without the knowledge of their parents. Again, most of what's going on in the world of terrorism today, or jihad, as they themselves call it, jihadis themselves, although jihad is many terms, and good friends of mine say I shouldn't use it, it is the term 
that they themselves use to describe themselves. They consider it the sixth pillar of Islam. And their willingness to sacrifice is based not so much on a deep understanding of religion. In fact, across the jihadi world, very few have a traditional religious education. Religious education is a negative predictor of involvement in violence. Also another counterintuitive finding from our research, humiliation is a negative predictor of violence. People who are humiliated tend to be submissive and passive. But if they think their friends and family and community is humiliated, that is a prod to violence. And that is especially common here in Western Europe among second and third generation immigrants who are attracted to the jihadi phenomenon. Let me start by saying that sacred values and instrumental values are intermingled in curious ways that we know little about. This is from an interview I had with Sheikh Hamad al-Batawi, who is the Imam of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, who is a spiritual guide of the Hamas. Our people don't own airplanes and tanks, only human bombs. Those who carry out martyrdom operations are not retarded, not hopeless, not poor, but are the best of our people. They do not flee from life, they are educated, not illiterate, successful in their lives. And that certainly was true of the Hamas until recently. They, the suicide bombers of the Hamas, came mostly from the upper third of the socioeconomic status and of education. The majority were college educated. The original Al-Qaeda, of course, was also mostly college educated, mostly in science, by the way, in engineering studies and in medical studies. That's no longer the case. More and more, those who have become disenfranchised and marginalized in their society and try to emulate the heroic epic of the Mujahideen and what happened in 9-11, are from increasingly from marginalized parts of society. But when he said this to me, it was still true. But here's an interview I had with uh, Abu Bakr Bashir, the emir of Jamaa Islamiyah. That's the group that was responsible for the Bali bombings. Uh, there is no nobler life than to die as a martyr for jihad, none. The highest deed in Islam is jihad. If we commit to jihad, we can neglect other deeds, even fasting and prayer. That's a very heretical view in Islam, but it is a common view uh, in the jihad. Now, I was very interested because I was with, uh, in Sulawesi, this is between Borneo and New Guinea, there is a town called Poso, which is perhaps the jihadi capital of the world. There are 40 Lashkars, jihadi militia there, fighting when I was there, mostly local Christians and fighters coming in from East Timor. But since it was a local affair, no one really cared. Although many jihadis sent, even from Spain, sent fighters there for training. And I was with a guy called Farahin. Farahin helped to blow up this, the Philippines ambassador's residence, and he was a host for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the mastermind behind the 9-11 bombing. And we became very good friends, I can say. He was, again, my bodyguard, protected me. And uh, once I said to him, Farahin, would you kill me? And he looked at me and said, Da, Habibi, la. And then he said, Aywa, naam, I, w I would kill you uh, if I had to. Uh, and then we were, we were they, they had erected uh, uh, training camps n near Balinese uh, villages. And the reason was no one would look for Mujahideen training camps where Balinese live, they're Hindus and at that time a fairly peaceful people. And we were at a Balinese wedding, overlooking a Balinese wedding, which was absolutely stunningly beautiful. And I said, Farhin, isn't this beautiful? And he said, I swear to you, I swear to you, if I could right now and if I had a bomb right now, I would blow, blow it up and blow up myself. Well, that was sort of stunning. I mean, this friend I thought I had known and changed tires with. And then, I, and then another event happened in which uh, a young fighter, about 17 years old, a Muslim fighter from the militia, from the Compact Charity Group, was killed in a skirmish. And Farahin uh, instructed his men to pick him up and started crying and said, why hasn't God allowed me to become a martyr? I've been fighting, and he's been fighting since the first wave of volunteers against the Soviets in Afghanistan. I've been fighting over 20 years and I'm still not a martyr. I said, Farahin, you've got six kids, you've got a wife, you love them, and you want to be a martyr. 
He says, yes, because there is no nobler thing in life than to die for a cause as a martyr with your friends. Just, uh, by the way, I use these slides as just memory props. Don't pay too much attention to them. They keep me on track from time to time as I tend to digress. But this is just an example from some studies we did that were published in Science Magazine and the Proceedings of the National Academy and other such things. Uh, what we found was, uh, here among Palestinian families, the more you offer uh, a material incentive for a family, for, for, for a martyrdom action for their children, the less likely they are to agree to have, uh, to, 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 to agree to support martyrdom actions. Again, which goes against uh, rational self-interest. Um, before I go on to exactly who are the people who commit suicide terrorism and who join the jihad, let me make a step back and talk about seemingly intractable conflicts. Because seemingly intractable conflicts are the point of grievance upon which the jihad hooks itself. And one such case is, of course, Israel and Palestine. Another case is Kashmir. Another is Chechnya. And still another, Iran and the United States. So what I do is I go out and I talk to leaders involved in these conflicts. I was recently with uh, Khalid Mishal and the Hamas Politburo in Damascus, and President Assad, and I was also with uh, Mr. Netanyahu and members of the Knesset. And I'd ask them what they want to ask of the other side. That's what I do. And what they think the other side is up to. And what the other side considers to be uh, non-fungible, not tradable, sacred. Now, neither side really has an idea of what the other side wants. Netanyahu asked us to ask Mashal only one question. Would you ever, under any circumstances, under any borders, recognize the right of the Jewish people to be here? And Khalid Mashal wanted to know, would you ever recognize what the Israelis have done to the Palestinian people since 1940, their dislocation and dispossession? So these were two core key things, emotional things, that both felt firmly, firmly about. So what we try to do is probe, first among leaders, and then in random surveys of the population, to what extent they're willing to trade off on these values. So here's an example. Suppose the United Nations organized a peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinians. Under this peace treaty, Palestinians would be required to give up their right of return to their ancestral homes. There would be two states, a Jewish state of Israel and a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. By the way, this is also a proposal in the Geneva Accords. What we find is the vast majority of the Palestinian people reject this. Now, if you offer a credible material incentive, $10 billion a year for 100 years to Palestine, or each family, Palestinian family, $10,000. We've done this very many ways, and we've done it with different kinds of scientific designs, support for suicide bombing, for violence increases, and opposition to the trade-off rises even further. So the more you offer an incentive or a disincentive that's material, the more people become violently entrenched in their position. But if the other side were simply to offer a symbolic gesture that speaks to the other side's material, symbolic value, sacred values, support for violence and willingness to consider a peace treaty increases significantly. So if the Israelis were simply to apologize sincerely for dislocation and dispossession, the attitude of even the most radical of the Hamas leaders changes considerably. And the same goes, we tested this just hours before the withdrawal of the settlers from Gaza, the forced withdrawal of the settlers from Gaza. The same thing occurs among Israeli settlers. If the Palestinian people were simply to recognize the right of the Jewish people to be in that part of the world and have their own place, then opposition among the settler population to a peace treaty that is defined along the 1967 borders increases significantly and support for violent resistance uh, um, decreases proportionately. 
we've uh, done this with the leaders and we've done this with random surveys of, of masses of the population. We've done this, we've briefed the White House, we've briefed the Knesset on this. The interesting thing is everybody understands their own values as sacred, but nobody understands the sacred values of the other person and that, that is really uh, a difficulty. We also, um, by the way, things like apologies, recognition of respect, that doesn't figure in any utilitarian calculus. There are really no economic theories or political theories out there that have any currency in which these are considered seriously. Yet again, I consider these to be those things most apt to break intractable conflicts. The standard approach to negotiation is deal with economic issues, tractable material issues, go piecemeal, and then leave the big vision things for the end. Well, that won't work. That won't work. You've got to deal with the core issues of identity first. Why? Sacred values are those things which define the moral framework of any society and within which all possible material transactions tra can transpire. We are not aware of our sacred values any more than most people are aware of the importance of food. I mean, sometimes we're aware of food, but when you're starving, food takes on asymptotic value. Same with sacred values. You live within them. It's only when they are confronted, when it's a point of conflict, as it was in World War II against the Nazi regime, or against others who threaten your values, that they become primor primary. I mean, in World War II, Britain united as a single country, and each and every Brit, or almost each and every Brit, was willing to make great sacrifices to see that their society endured because they believe it was worth enduring. We find among the Iranians today, we just finished a survey in 28 out of 30 or so Iranian provinces, where we find that support of 14% of the Iranian population that's closest to the regime on a number of levels believes that acquiring a nuclear capability is a sacred value. That tells us a number of things. First, that sacred values can emerge re relatively fast if they're, if they're bound up to core notions of national sovereignty and identity. Second, we find that uh, nuclear capability here does not refer to nuclear weapons, only to nuclear energy. Unfortunately, when this stuff was first published in the scientific journals, the headlines in Newsweek and other places was, Iranians believe nukes sacred. Therefore, they're crazy people and there's nothing to do about them because people wanted to believe them. But what it's telling us is that at least among the core people most associated with the Iranian regime, sanctions, carrots or sticks, backfire. And so another way must be found. Unfortunately, that is the tact that we continue to use. So, I guess the bottom line about sacred values and seemingly intractable conflicts is you must address those first. Now, the interesting thing about sacred values is they are non-negotiable. So how do you negotiate them? I mean, since they're part of your core identity, it's not like we can give a little bit of our sacred values if you give up a little bit of your sacred values. Again, business-like negotiations, give and take, simply won't work. Now, the interesting thing about sacred values is they're bound up to things like religion. And if you look at religious propositions, they are non-propositional. They have no fixed truth value. There is no true interpretation of the religion. Or rather, the true interpretation of religion varies enormously over time and context. That's why you have sermons every week. And that's why the Ten Commandments, which once meant if you violate this particular commandment, you were killed immediately. This was true in ancient Israel. Today, what it means is spend more time with your family. Don't think so much about material things. And it varies from every mind to mind. It's a little like Mao Zedong's. By the way, we actually did experiments to show that they were exactly not memes. The only one, so we had uh, people, students, and we had people in Bible classes and people in seminaries. Uh, exposed to commandments like thou shalt, now bow, thou shalt not bow down before false idols or keep the Sabbath holy. And then we had them paraphrase it and someone from outside would come in and they'd tell the person who came in what the paraphrase was. And we did this under 10 iterations. 
And we put on the board a bunch of propositions, including the original commandments. The only people who recognize the original commandments? Autistics. Why? Because autistics are the only meme machines. They're the only ones who literally repeated the message iteration to iteration. All others interpreted it in very idiosyncratic and personalized ways, yet they all believed they were saying exactly the same thing. And that is the magic, in a sense, of religion. And that's the way you can deal with sacred values as well. People can reframe them without giving them up. I don't have time to really go into that. But now let's get back to the jihad. We find within the jihad about 7% in the Gallup and Pew polls of the Muslim world supported, strongly supported the attacks of 9-11. That's about 100 million people out of 1.3 billion people. And buy into the jihadi dream. That's a sacred value. Yet, even if you buy into this as a sacred value, why is it out of that 100 million people, so few actually have committed to violence? In the United States, 60 arrested for any serious charge, despite the crazy hysteria in the United States about jihadis about to attack the Iowa Pork Festival. I'm not kidding. Uh, in Europe, all of Europe, 2,400 people have been arrested out of tens of millions of Muslim immigrants. So again, why so few out of so many? And the answer here is that although sacred values and it's a fairly superficial and, rap and, and recently constructed, socially constructed sacred value in the case of the jihad, why is, although that may be a necessary condition, why is it woefully insufficient and what is the best predictor of violence? Well, it turns out the best predictor of who will commit to violence, and this is what I also tell intelligence agencies, if you want to crack a group, the best way to crack them is find out what they eat, find out what they wear, and who their friends are. Because that is what determines who will go on to violence. It's almost a random process. People keep telling, you know, I go to all these meetings where the people say, oh, mathematical, the United States government spends billions on mathematical models and parametrization and prediction of jihadi activities. It's almost a random process where one group of friends will sort of get the jihadi bug and how it will snowball among them. And I'll give you a few examples and I'll try to wind up. So the last suicide bombing that occurred in Israel was the Dimona bombing of February 2008. The next day I flew to Hebron from which the suicide bombers came and I interviewed the families and the mother of these two young gentlemen. And the mother said, well, they were soccer buddies. They went to the same El Jihad mosque soccer team, but they were on the junior team, you see. And I said, yeah, well, what, what does that mean? And they said, well, all the senior team had died in suicide attacks back in 2003. Was the worst spate of suicide attacks during the second of the Nifanda was by one group from the same soccer team, from the same neighborhood, almost all of whom wanted to go to the local Polytechnic Institute. Now, could it be that there were just a bunch of pathological maniacs on this one soccer team in this one neighborhood? Of course not. We found that in Darna, Libya, 50 young guys from the same neighborhoods went to blow themselves up in Iraq. When I was in Saudi Arabia and was, you know, sort of schmoozing with the Saudi intelligence guys, they would bring in guys they had captured that were on their way to Iraq and Afghanistan, always groups of friends who thought they could be heroic and were on the adventure of jihad and had tried to enlist with their friends. There is a myth out there that Al-Qaeda is out there recruiting among Muslim, young Muslim men. Al-Qaeda is like a funding agency. <coughs> sort of the equivalent of the National Science Foundation in the United States. You'd give proposals to Al-Qaeda. They'd accept about 15 to 20 percent of them. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was one of them. And people go looking for them. They really didn't go looking for anybody else. Uh, take, the, take the Hamburg bombers, the suicide pilots of 9-11. They were doubly alienated in the sense they were the only Middle Easterners in their neighborhood in Harburg who were not 
Moroccan, who were not Turks, and who were not Germans. They hung around the same fast food place. They hung around on the second story of the Al Quds Mosque and two other, the 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 Al Mujharun and the and the Al Nur mosques. If you go onto this, these are just sort of uh, apartment mosques. If you go into the second story, there's a bunch of outdated computers. There's a halal butcher shop. There's a barber shop, and that's where all this stuff started happening. They got an apartment together. The neighbors told us the place stank because they never left the apartment. They brought in about 20 mattresses for fellow travelers, and they psyched themselves up. They went into a sort of parallel universe in a cocoon. And that's what we find with the London guys. That's what we find with the Madrid guys. That's what we find with these Hamas guys. They live in this parallel universe, and they come out wanting to do something. Now, the Hamburg guys wanted to go to Bosnia. The Bosnians said, get lost. I mean, get us some German, see, get us some Russian night goggles, which were just coming on the market after the collapse of the Soviet. Then they wanted to go to Chechnya until someone said, hey, guys, the Russians aren't going to let you in. They met somebody on a train who said, maybe we can get you to Pakistan. And they wound up in Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's lap, who only the year before had given his proposal to Al-Qaeda, which was voted on, and just by a narrow plurality accepted. And he basically said, hey boss, look what I got. Three guys who want to do jihad and have visas that they can get them into the United States. And thus was born the 9-11 plot. And that was the most organized and expensive plot of all. All of the others are much more anarchic and chaotic. Take the Madrid plot. So notions of cells and recruiters and hierarchy and brainwashing and indoctrination is truly a bunch of bunk. I won't go into the history of where brainwashing comes from. It comes from the North Korea, the war in North Korea when a hundred Brits and Americans didn't want to go back to the United States and Britain. So this idea of of Chinese mastermind Pavlonian, Pavlovian manipulators was invented and the Manchurian candidate was filmed and ever since we've had brainwashing here and brainwashing there. Sleeper cells is another is another myth. I mean George Tennant was testifying in Congress just before me and he goes on about how there are sleeper cells all over the United States and I got the head of the, sort of the, head of the, of the FBI's counterterrorism sitting next to me and I said can he, why do you let him go on about this like this? <laughs> you know what the only sleeper cell in the history of the United States was? Colonel Rudolph Abel in, 19, in the 1950s who had an art shop and was exchanged for Francis Gary Powers, a U-2 pilot shot out of the Soviet That's it, one sleeper cell in the history of the United States. But yet we have brainwashing and sleeper cells all over the place. This is more about bureaucratic imaging. Okay, our bureaucracies and our military are organized hierarchically. There's command and control. There's, there's clear lines of operations. This is just not the case in the jihad. In fact, not the case in most of the world. So here's the interesting thing about the Madrid bombers. Five of the seven guys you know, went to the trial in Madrid, and then I went into the neighborhoods, and I found out that five of the seven guys who blew themselves up when cornered by the police these five guys here, there. all came, by the way, those five guys on, on the right are family and friends of the original five guys who blew themselves up in Iraq. So I find out that they all grew up within a neighborhood within 200 meters of one another. No religious education. In fact, they, they went to Spain and they got involved in the construction industry and the clandestine drug trade. They all went to the same elementary school, the Abdul Karim Khatabi, same high school. Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Goofy. It was not radical madrasa indoctrination by any means. The madrasas have really nothing to do with the jihad period for a very simple reason, except for the Taliban, which is a completely localized struggle, not at all interested in global jihad, to tell you the truth. In Pakistan and Afghanistan, 250 times more was spent on military than on health, education, and welfare. So the only ma schools that are open to the rural poor are madrasas, right? But no one who does global jihad wants somebody from a madrasa. Why? Because they're rural poor people basically still illiterate. They want people who can do GPS and know a bunch of foreign languages and can meld in society and have university education. Why would you want some guy from a madrasa? So really, this madrasa myth is also belongs with the uh, recruiters and the sleeper cells and the brainwashing as another urban myth. 
So these guys in the Jama Mezuak, this little tumble-down barrio in Tetuan where they came from, played soccer together, schmoozed together, went to the same barber shops. The entire Madrid pop was hatched along one street called Tribulete Street, Tribulete in the Lava Pies neighborhood of Madrid. One guy was the owner of a locutorio, a sort of internet shop. Another guy was the owner of a butcher shop. Another guy a grocery store. Some tr traded drugs up in the Plaza Ca Cabasteros, just two blocks north. And that's where it all happened. None of it happened in mosques. People pray in mosques. They don't really plot in mosques. They have to be quiet. They plot outside of mosques. So I went to the neighborhood, and I asked the kids, who your heroes are? Who are your heroes? What do, you, what do you dream about? What do you want in life? The, the, the responses were stunning. We went, uh, just after Barack was elected, the first guy said, I want to be an archaeologist. He's playing in the garbage. He's playing soccer with his buddies in the garbage. He's 10 years old. He wants to be, I say, to find treasure? He, knows, he goes, no, I want to find out what our real history is. Uh, that was sort of stunning. And then the next guy kicking in the garbage goes, I want to be a doctor. So much for the idea of sort of mindless, brainwashed kids, even in these poor neighborhoods. And so I asked who their heroes were. Well, bef back in 2006, their heroes were number one, Ronaldinho. Barca star, right? Barca is the class team. Much as I like Manchester United and Arsenal, this is really the world-class team that people buy into. They actually pay UNICEF to put on their shirts and don't take advertisement. Number two, the Terminator. They had no idea he was related to the present governor of California. <laughs> had they known? <laughs> Number three was Osama bin Laden. Went back a week after Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. Number one, it was a sort of tie between Ronaldinho, Sergio Morales, and Eto, all soccer players. Surprisingly, and I argue with him, Zinedine Zidane wasn't one of them. I couldn't understand why. Number two, Terminator, again. Number th Terminator 2. <laughs> and number three, just beating out Osama bin Laden was Barack Obama. Well, what is this telling us? It's telling us, first, that in this crash of cultures, these young people are flailing around, looking for a sense of meaning and identity in their lives, looking for something to hold on to, some dream, some hope, that will give significance and greatness and glory to them, because that's what young people dream about lest you all have forgotten. And those were the dreams available to them and that are still available to them. Yes, we can, and happiness as martyrdom are both competing for the souls of young people across the world. It is a development we have not begun to understand, yet alone master or steer. Our reaction to this whole phenomena is still one of bombs and bullets and bluster. I was at the White House briefing them on this. And from Mr. Cheney's staff came one young woman in her sternest, tough guy voice, said to me, don't these young people understand? They've got to take individual responsibility. And if they don't, we're going to bomb them, and we're going to kill them in their lairs. I said, could you repeat that, please? <laughs> she repeated that even in a stronger voice. I said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> Are you going to bomb London? Right? Are you going to bomb Madrid? Are you going to bomb Morocco? That's our ally. Who are you going to bomb to stop this? I said, there's got to be a different way. The problem is, they're not, now here's a very interesting fact about the United States. There is no real jihadi problem in the United States. The reason is the United States' social fabric is built for the rapid integration and prosperity of immigrants. Muslims in the United States are above average in socioeconomic status and in education to the mean of the American population. They are five times more likely to be poor in the United Kingdom, nine times more likely to be poor in Spain. So they occupy basically the position that blacks in ghettos in the United States do. And so there's a lot of disaffection in Europe that doesn't exist in the United States. On the other hand, the foreign policy of the United States bears no relationship whatsoever to the actual social structure and the democracy that exists in the United States, however imperfect. The foreign policy of the United States is determined exclusively by the National Security Council. 
Congress has no say until things go south. They control the budget, but they have no real input into foreign policy decisions. That is exclusively determined by the National Security Council, which I've briefed on several occasions. The National Security Council consists exclusively of the military, of intelligence, of the Council of Economic Advisors. There is no relationship to human beings there, knowledge of human beings, of health, of education, of welfare, of what moves people to do what they do. So everything is considered, one, in terms of costs and benefits, and two, in purely kinetic means. If we can't persuade them with a three-year budget of USAID aid, then we have to bomb them. We have to get rid of the problem. And that is the problem. The reaction of the United States to this problem has been terrible. Never before have so few people with so few means, the jihadis, terrified so many. You know, I was, when I was a kid, my father was manager of weapon systems development for Westinghouse. And on October 26, he was taken away uh, to a secure location and asked whether uh, phantom jets armed with Sparrow missiles could knock down Russian ICBMs launched from Cuba. And the answer was no. And my father said he wasn't sure that the sun would ever come up again. And he's a World War II veteran. That was a scary time. That was a time when the survival of our civilizations really did hang in the balance. Nothing remotely like this occurs today, and yet our reaction is as if we were under the same kind of threat, or worse. Civil liberties are being curtailed for the first time. George W. Bush, the president, comes out today and says, we waterboarded and we saved England. Well, I'm reminded of Ben Franklin's words. Anybody who believes that you can sacrifice a little liberty for a little more security deserves to lose both. And I think that's the threat the United States faces in this hysterical reaction to the jihad and in the fact that all of our politicians are held hostage to the idea that the jihad is a threat menacing the very survival of mankind and so they are making it so. And I think the, the, the prime example is in Pakistan. The Taliban were not very close to Al-Qaeda. As I said, Mullah Omar uh, banned uh, bin Laden in June 2001 from making fatwas, put him under house arrest, confiscated his cell phone, denied him his credit cards, and after 9-11 they were trying to think of how to get rid of him. The United States ridiculed the process. And I won't go into why the notion of the guest is so important in the survival of Pashtun tribes over the last 2,000 years, but it is. Ridicule the notion that you can just, that you have to protect your guest and have to figure a way to get rid of him, other than just kicking him out. Bomb the Taliban and the, and the Al-Qaeda into togetherness. They fled to the Pashtun tribes, a different group, the Karlandri tribes, the Pashtun tribes, on the northwest frontier, the Waziris, the Afridis, the Mehsuds. Those were the same tribes, by the way, that had defeated the English in four wars, three wars, between 1840 and 1920. When Lord Corzon, when Lord Corzon established the Northwest Frontier Provinces, he did so precisely to contain these tribes, saying as long as they don't raid into the Punjab, we stay out and we keep quiet. When Muhammad Ali Jinnah founded the state of Pakistan, he instituted a plan which he aptly called Operation Khorsan, where he withdrew all armed forces above the brigade level from the northwest frontier provinces and from the federally administrated territories. Only when the United States prodded Musharraf to send in the Pakistani army after 2001 did the Pashtun tribes unite, because they couldn't stand one another. I mean, the, the worst traditional enemies are Mehsuds and Wazirs and Afridis, right? Not only did they unite, but they began calling themselves Taliban when they couldn't stand the Taliban before. I mean, the, the, the actual Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, were trying to homogenize Pashtun custom and unite under a peculiar set of Pashtun and Sharia law. And the, the, the Pakistani Pashtun tribes wouldn't have nothing to do with this. But now, Taliban 
has become an umbrella term for anyone opposed to the United States, the coalition, NATO, its associates, and they are threatening the Pakistani state for the first time. Pakistan put all its nuclear facilities in the west near the Pashtun territories to keep it as far away from India as possible. And just recently there have been three attacks on Pakistani nuclear facilities by enraged Pashtun tribesmen. Not that they're succeeding, but that, that's calling attention to we have created the possibility of a monster. And in this cauldron of monstrosity you have groups like Lashkar Taibe who are threatening India and I'm that to me is the greatest strategic threat the world faces right now. Lashkar Taiba are allowed to exist and Hafiz Saeed who's a very intelligent man, professor of engineering, who is responsible, their group is responsible for the Mumbai attacks. He's allowed to spout forth anything he wants because he's the one group that will not attack the Pakistani army and Pakistani state so they let him run free. But I'm afraid that in this whole big mishmash of jihadi mess, there will be another concerted attack upon India, and that will cause us great harm. Let me just sum up. What has happened to the hope that Obama instilled when I went there in North Africa a week after his election, and I wrote an article uh, saying that he deserved the Nobel Prize simply for the the hope he has inspired. Well, we did a recent poll, say in the Palestinian territories, and here we find that Obama now ranks last, behind Osama bin Laden, behind Ahmadinejad. Why? His Cairo speech raised such hopes, and nothing was followed through. Palestine is as worse as ever. In Afghanistan, we have now the same troop levels we had with the Soviets and things are only getting worse. And it's almost as if he had never come upon the stage. It would have been better if he had not a word at all because there's terrible disappointment. That is precisely not the way to go. I still think that dreams and hopes mobilized in the fight for faith and friends, causes and camaraderie, more than industry and power, gives impetus to lives and civilizations. And that is the way we will change the future. The next time I went to the National Security Council, after I got this speech about how we're going to bomb them in their lairs, I brought comic books, which I distributed <laughs> around comic books called the 99. These represent the 99 faces of God. And they, there, are, there are Muslim young people around the world that don't know they have the power of the 99. They have these secret gemstones. And they sort of accidentally hook up at first and their power for UNESCO <laughs> and for the good grows as they hook up. I said, that's much more inspiring than moderate imams. I mean, who is interested in moderation when they're that age? That's a crazy notion, yet that's the notion most advanced by our political leaders. The Quadrennial Defense Review of the United States government says, the way we're going to defeat this is by making it too costly for the jihadis. You've got to be kidding. They're in it for the sacred stuff. I gave them the example of the Ulm plotters. These guys, these young guys who made it to an Uzbek, they wanted to find Al-Qaeda, they couldn't. In Waziristan, they found an Uzbeki camp of Uzbeki jihadis. They wanted to fight the Americans and the Uzbekis who, who've been fighting with the Mujahideen for years said, well, you know, we can do better without you, basically. Mules do better than you do. But go back and blow up something and publicize it because publicity is really the oxygen of terrorism. They said, okay, we're going to go back and blow up something. And they'd send back emails. How many grams of ammonium nitrate was that? And the NSA picked this up and told the German authorities about it. The Germans bugged the apartment. The, the would-be jihadis found the bug, started talking into the bug, planning. The German intelligence surrounded the building. The, <laughs> they came down. They looked out of the window. They came down with knives. They stuck it in the tires of the German intelligence agents who were instructed not to engage. And you think to yourself, what kind of costs are going to deter these guys? You've, again, you've got to be kidding. My final, my final word on this. Again, I'm reminded of all of this, that the only, of, a, of a speech by Abraham Lincoln, 
uh, during the Civil War, where he referred sympathetically to the Southern rebels as human beings just like anybody else. An elderly woman, a staunch Unionist, upbraided him for speaking kindly of his enemies when he ought to be thinking of destroying them. And his response was, why, madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And if you think about it, there are only two ways to truly win wars. You exterminate your foe, or else they'll come back at you eventually, or you make them into your friends, as hopefully the Germans and the Japanese are today. Now, how do we, how do we make them into our friends without fabricating a common enemy as when Ronald Reagan said to Chairman Gorbachev, maybe one day we will become friends when the Martians invade. I think that's the greatest political challenge of all and the one I hope you'll all think about solving. Thank you. Thank you very much um, for a refreshing and, and very uh, erudite uh, presentation on a wide range of topics. Um, I wanted to come back to a topic that was uh, in the title. Right? <laughs> no, no, you covered a large range of topics, and I had a hard time actually focusing a question on just one particular one. But I want to talk about suicidal martyrdom operations. And you talked a great deal about those individuals who engage in martyrdom or suicide operations. But I also wanted to ask you about those individuals who do not, not only the individuals who do not engage in martyrdom operations, but also the groups, the organizations, the societies, the conflicts which choose not to use suicide or martyrdom operations as part of their, their strategy. And I wanted to know what you thought about why that was the case. Um, there are many conflicts which have territories at the root of it, or territorial grievances at the root of them, um, including in sub-Saharan Africa, there are many conflicts there where identity is important, ethnicity is important. There are conflicts in Latin America which are over grievances and over inequalities, Colombia, for example. Um, yet the FARC does not engage in suicide operations. Um, neither do, neither do uh, the Darfur rebels engage in suicide operations. So my question is then, why is it that certain organizations choose to do that and others do not? Okay, well, my, uh, we'll take a couple questions together. Good evening. My name is Tanya Dimitrova. Thank you for your talk. Um, there was lots of wisdom to your words. And as you pointed out yourself, you already shared that wisdom with the National Security Council and the U.S. Congress. So, they, it seems to me that they act unwisely, not for a lack of information, not from ignorance. In this case, and this is a serious question, how can we hope for a better and more sensi sensible U.S. foreign policy if they're unwilling to listen to common sense? Thank you. Okay. Another question? Yes, here on the right. Thank you. I would like to speak uh, directly to the part of religion in this. I understand that people say that religion is everything about this conflict, that people are people, religion divides them, etc., etc. You see things in a less simplistic way, but still, it does appear that when, when your end proposition is we need to figure out how to be friends with these people, when, when the binding myths of the societies are that, you know, say for instance, the Jews are at the heart of this world evil, they're the ones who uh, chose not to listen to God, in quotes, it's very difficult to make them your best friend after centuries of, uh, you know, adversity which appear to be at the, at the heart of the culture. So, so I, I'm just interested in the, uh, perhaps if you could frame the way in which your, your views are different to say someone like Sam Harris and, and, and for what reasons. And if I might just adjunct to that, um, just the notion of indoctrination. We had a recent incident in the UK with uh, someone watching supposedly 100 hours of jihadi videos as their indoctrination. In your indoctrination is, is nonsense. How do you frame not the Madras indoctrination but the general globalization internet? You can pick this stuff up anywhere, kind of. All right, we have to stop there, yeah. otherwise my, you know, I'm getting senile in my old age. <laughs> All right, the, the, the first question. Uh, well, maybe I'll start with the last question. Uh, how do I differ from, from people like Sam Harris? 
I myself am an atheist. I, I, I mean, I don't believe in any kind of anthropomorphic supernatural being out there guiding the universe or that we can intervere, inter, intervene with things like prayer to change the, the nomological laws of the universe as it is. I do, however, have what I think most human beings have, a religious sensibility in terms of a respect for sacred and divine things, whether we know it or not. Uh, human rights, I think, is an eminently religious notion. Where I differ from people like Harris and uh, Dawkins or Dan Dennett, uh, people, some people, some of these guys I know very well, and I've been with them, for example, at the, invited by the Ch Communist Chinese Government Atheist Commission uh, in Beijing. Uh, I think that they pay no attention to the facts of the case. I think they have no knowledge of what the jihad is, of what the religious sensibilities that motivate such people are and uh, the evil or good that religion has done. Religion is basically a neutral vessel. It is a vessel for dreams and transcendental values and morality for keeping strangers to glued together. But what you do with religion, it can, the same religious propositions in the same institutions can be used for great creativity or to stifle creativity, to persecute or to liberate. Benjamin Franklin wanted the motto of the American Republic to believe, to say, uh, Obedience to God is disobedience to tyranny. And that, of course, was Ibn Khaldun's interpretation of why it is that Islam was able to endear itself to masses of humanity. But it's also caused great evil, great killing, murders. It still does. And the jihadi form of it is one, is one form of it. It's not so much indoctrination. We're witness now to a massive media-driven political awakening where people who were literally cannibals two generations ago, say in Borneo, are plugging into the same message as people in Tierra del Fuego or in London. With all this massive information to make sense of life as these cultures are collapsing, young people are plugging into something that is significant for them within a very narrow bandwidth. Within that bandwidth, they're looking for inspirational and heroic messages. The jihad is a message that resonates with people who feel themselves unhappy and unjust. Looking at, for example, looking at Palestine. Okay, Palestine never mattered much to Muslim immigrants in Britain, for God's sakes, much less to Muslims in Sulawesi or in Borneo. They didn't even know about Palestine or Chechnya or any of these places. It's only very recently that these have become the symbolic knots of the world. It's doing it through the internet, it's doing it through the media, and paradoxically, the bandwidth of information that's flooding into people becomes narrower and narrower as the total amount of information becomes greater and greater. And on the internet, a very peculiar thing happens. There's an old New Yorker cartoon from 1993 when the internet first appeared with two dogs at a computer. And one dog's typing in the computer and looking at the other dog and says, no one knows we're dogs on the internet. <laughs> the world of the internet, two people can be the entire world on the internet. You can actually believe you are the world. And that's what we find happening. So again, it's not indoctrination. It's messages out there. You know, when Major Hassan killed those soldiers in Fort Hood, when Umar Abdul Futala planned the Christmas Day bombing, when Mohammed Shah Hassad planned the Times Square bombing, there was, across the world, headlines for each of them, Aulaki implicated brainwashing and doctrine. Look at the actual email messages. Dozens and dozens of messages sent by these guys to Aulaki. Aulaki responds with two. And basically is follow the way of God, my son. No operational nothing out there. He's just an attractor for the hope. You know, I interviewed a guy who wanted to blow up the American embassy in a Paris prison. I asked him why he, why he, why he wanted to do this. He said, well, you know, someone spit at my sister and called her a salarab, and I just couldn't take it anymore. I said, well, yeah, people have been doing that for years, but why did you want to blow up the embassy in response? He said, well, years ago there was no jihad. Now it's there. Just the very fact that bin Laden is there, just the very fact that the message is out there is enough. It's inspirational enough. You don't need brainwashing. You don't need indoctrination. Second, what was the second one? Just give me a, a one word. Hint. Could you just briefly restate the question, please? My question was if the National Security Council at 
Yes, I got it. <laughs> All right. How do we change? How do we change the behavior of the United States National Security Council? Well, look at what's happened to President Obama. I think he sincerely wanted to change. I think he sincerely believed he could change. And I think the current structure of American politics, part of this media-driven global political awakening, has focused our societies on a more and more narrow bandwidth where we have created this notion of a Muslim threat in the world. And that the American people largely buy into this. We just did a recent survey about the cultural center, the so-called 9-11 mosque. Uh, and we found that the majority of the American people are against it. An overwhelming majority of Republicans, Democrats are split down the middle. Now you think of why a cultural center? You know, there's a gentleman's club next door to 9-11. Why uh, a, a Muslim cultural center would cause such hysteria? And the reason is people actually believe, are led to believe nowadays that there is a war between the Muslim world and the United States despite all the, all the attempts to deny it. And that for political gain, you have to buy into it. Or you have to take Harry Reid. Harry Reid, the head of the Democrats in the Senate, first he, he went along with the mosque, believing, as most, most of us who are sane do, that has nothing to do with 9-11. In fact, it could be a nice reminder that Muslims are not just 9-11. But then he caved in to popular pressure, led by the Tea Party and Glenn Beck's movement. By the way, my next book is going to be entitled, Why Glenn Beck and Asimov Bin Laden Need Each Other. <laughs> and the political reality of the United States is such is that you must pay heed and homage to that particular crazy message. Either remain silent or pay heed to him. What could change it? Great leaders, spontaneous organizations of people like you, but Americans who organized themselves, who organized themselves to fight it, that's probably more likely to succeed. But again, I don't see it happening right now. I think things just are spiraling uh, downhill. Last question, why do some societies go for suicide terrorism and others not? Well, let me just give a first example. Among the jihad itself, and the jihad, those who go for suicide terrorism and those who perform other operations like roadside bombing, there's no difference absolutely no difference. In terms of other societies, why they don't? Well, suicide bombing is an extremely effective mechanism for psychological terror. It is the most effective mechanism anyone has come out with. Human beings are not built to understand random events. We're built to see causality everywhere. And we're built, we have another psychological bias, namely, if there are big effects, there must be big causes like 9-11 or Madrid, there have to be some evil terrorist central out there doing these things. But once you buy into it, once the people who are involved buy into it and realize that they can propagate their means through these spectacular acts and that there is some ideological grounding within their own worldview, then it's inordinately successful. I mean, yes. Of course it is, and that's exactly what Patawi said. It is rational, but, but at the same time, it is independent of actual prospects of success. You know, people, I, I read rational choice views, and I, I have Mr. Rational Choice as my deep partner here, a guy named Bob Axelrod, sort of one of the inventors of game theory. He works on it, but now he's converted to sacred values, by the way. Uh, People would come up with all sorts of post hoc rational arguments about why people are doing it. It's like they're, they're looking for, for virgins in heaven. Now, no matter how crazy we think this is, if that is actually in their preference structure, in their rational preference structure, then it is a rational choice. But of course, first of all, that's a sexual fantasy of our societies. I mean, I talked to these groups and these people. Anybody who tried to be a martyr looking for virgins in heaven would have the door slammed in his face. And I see post hoc rationalizations in the literature, political science literature, constantly. But you have to ask yourself, you can always find post hoc rational choice explanations of anything. The question is, does it give you blinding explanatory insight into what is actually going on? Surprising and significant insights. And my answer is no, because they are not operating on that kind of traditional, I think, preference structure in terms of material benefits and costs. 
Again, why do other societies do it and other societies not? If you want to make it spectacular, if you believe that publicity is truly the oxygen of it, then you will go for it. And I'll give you an example of the organizational movement in the world that was closest to the jihadi movement, and that's the anarchist movement of a century ago. The anarchist movement began in Russia in the 1870s with spectacular acts of suicide terror. And they were wildly successful, much more so than the jihadis today. They were completely secular, by the way, but grounded in the idea that they had to fight the power of capital and the state. They killed the President of the United States, the Queen of Austria, Prime Minister of France, the Tsar of Russia, 20 Russian ministers, the Archduke of Austria to start World War I. It was a tremendous movement, eventually replaced by communist movement, which ousted them. But the reaction to the anarchists was very similar to the reaction of the jihadis today. Scotland Yarn was formed to deal with the anarchists. The Russian Okhrana, the forerunner of the NKVD and the KGB, was built to deal with the anarchist threat. The Secret Service mutated and the FBI was formed to deal with the anarchist threat. Why? Because people believed there was this great, organized, anarchist central conspiracy to bring down the Western world. Teddy Roosevelt issued the corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, in which he said, in terms strikingly similar to George Bush's speech on September 20th, 2011, because of the spread of irrational barbarism in the world, the United States must, if other nations will not, be ready to intervene anywhere in the world to prevent barbarism from taking over. And that was the original uh, excuse for United States uh, imperial gamesmanship uh, in the world. So there was another movement that behaved very similar, that had the same view of suicide uh, terror as the jihadis today and did it for exactly the same reasons. It was very effective at scaring people, causing overreaction, which is the number one uh, aim of a terrorists. If we go back, for example, to the Jewish zealots in the revolt against Rome, zealot comes from a group of Jewish insurgents, the Sicarii and the zealots, who would attack Greeks representing Rome in local government in Palestine and Israel and Judea, and the Russian commander, the Russian, the Roman commanders would tell their troops to sheathe their swords and fight the insurgents with staves, with wooden staves. So the zealots and sicarius up the ante, and they do during public ceremonies spectacular acts of slitting the throat of Roman soldiers and Greek underlings to provoke the Romans into greater reaction, and it worked they mobilized the entire Jewish population against Rome and it became so problematic for the Romans that they decided to expel the Jews from Palestine, from Judea altogether and rename it after the Philistines, Palestina. I think, so I think it recurs. Actually the first suicide terrorist was probably Samson. It recurs every time the weaker force believes they can amplify the act through some kind of publicity and psychological terror. If you believe there are other means available, you won't go for it. Scott, I think we'll have to stop you there. Um, there are copies, just to remind you, there are copies of Scott's book just outside the middle door here on the table. If you'd like to buy a copy, Scott would be very happy to sign it for you. Yep. He has to go minutes. in about five minutes, yeah. so you better be quick. But in the meantime, many thanks to Scott for a fascinating